I don't want to just make enchiladas like I grew up with. I want to know what else is out there. Yeah. I mean, what else nobody else is, you know, making. I want to know what there is that people only in Mexico are actually eating and I want to know more about this history. So that's that's when it really started. The Portland 50 podcast is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Welcome back to the Portland 50 podcast. It's a podcast series about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. I'm your host, Court Johnson. Our first guest for this second series is Nick Zukin. Nick is a former web developer turned restaurateur. He owns Me Marimole in Old Town Portland and co-founded Kenny and Zook's Delicatessen. He's also a co-author of a cookbook called The Artisan Jewish Deli at Home. You might also find Nick at an occasional Blazers game, eating his way through Gresham, or on one of his many yearly treks to Mexico for research. He was kind enough to join me on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. You grew up uh, in Lane County? Is that right? I did. Okay, just yeah. outside of Eugene? Yeah, Elmira, Venita, Burnridge area. Burn so, Ditch, in, as we in, called it. in terms of radio down in Eugene, what were, uh, I guess Eugene has fair, they have their own stations down there. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, I listened to LCC stuff when I was in high school because there was a lot of, you know, college rock and alternative stuff on it. Um, and then I listened to like the, the rock station. There was kind of an equivalent of kink where it was kind of a, a mix, you know, yeah, things like that. But I mostly listened to, uh, tapes. Okay. So, you know, I was yeah, yeah. one of those kids who was constantly making mixtapes and right. things like that. So have you made a mixtape lately? I haven't made a mixtape for a while. You know, when Napster first started, right? Um, I was working at um, Will Vinton Studios, so now Leica Studios. Okay. And we had fiber coming into the building, so it was like super fast internet. So I had Napster, and I was basically just downloading songs all day long. Right. I'd make all kinds of crazy mixes. I'd come up with a theme to download songs. So I remember like one uh, Valentine's Day, I decided, okay, what are like the sappiest, worst love songs of all time? And I sent that out as a mass email to like our 200 employees. Right. I got all these responses back. So I just made a gigantic playlist <laughs> and I made all these uh, Valentine's um, CDs yeah. that were just like the worst. I mean, just all the worst. Lots of Chicago. Right. Lots oh, of wow. Chicago, I remember. Uh, I can't remember Air Supply, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. It's got to be in there. Yeah. And I, then um, when I was at Kenny and Zook's on Valentine's Day, I used to play those CDs all day. <laughs> per- perfect Valentine's Day slash delicatessen music, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you hit, you just hit on two things that I actually wanted to talk about first. When you, If you look at the Nick Zookin bio, while it's very food-centric now, it didn't really start out that way because you were into computer programming. That was going to be your career? Yeah. And, well, I, I mean, I didn't go to college for it. I went to college in economics uh, philosophy, uh, poli sci. I was thinking maybe lawyer. Originally, I wanted to be a doctor. And then uh, when I was in high school, I was like, you know, I don't really like gory stuff. So maybe I wouldn't like it. I mean, now I look back and it's like, oh, that'd be no problem. But I'm glad I didn't have the uh, student loans. Right. But um, yeah, I, I had been programming since I was in like second grade. I was in a small tag program and the library teacher was also the tag teacher. We called it Sage back then uh i can't remember what exactly it's what the for. acronym stands for yeah it's like scholastic advancement guidance enrichment that's okay, it wow there it is. that's and that's why you were a <laughs> sage student yeah i can still give you my 22 helping verbs and pi to like 20 digits if you like wow so um he taught us how to program in basic on like an old apple II computer when i was in second grade yeah and and then when i was in sixth grade uh I got a Commodore 64 for Christmas, and I started programming a lot on that. And so by the time I got to college, I had a decent amount of programming. I was actually doing, though, um, mostly uh, um, uh, graphic design for newspapers. I worked on uh, college newspapers a lot, uh, started my own for a while. Um, so I used to do a lot of design. So when the web came around, it was a natural fit for me because I both knew how to program and I knew how to do graphic design. Yeah. And so I started doing web development. And then my last year of college, I actually got a, 
I was going to school full time, but I was also working like 50 hours a week for this uh, web startup adoption.com. And I worked my way up to their head developer. And when I moved out here, I was actually still doing that. I was working for them as their head developer, just, you know, remotely. Remote. Yeah. You know, it was kind of early remote work. Well, I was going to say, it had been fairly early on. Yeah. I, was, I remember it was the, like mid to late 90s. Yeah. No one really knew what remote work back then. I, I remember once meeting a guy who, who worked for some company on the East Coast and was explaining to me, and this is back in the 90s, and I it, I could not fathom this idea. I'm like, wait, hold, hold, wait a minute. So your office at home is your office at work? Yeah. It was the greatest thing ever, except for that. I was probably a little too young, so I probably should have worked a little bit harder. You know, it was really easy to, you know, get on Napster and just start right. downloading stuff instead of finishing that project. And then, and then you work for like 30 hours straight to catch up, you know, and you're like, you know, waking up with bloody noses because you've, you know, worked for so long straight and yeah. hopped up on Mountain Dew. And it, at, at what, at what point during, um, the, the computer programming, did you make the decision though, that food was going to be the direction you were going to head? It was the, um, early 2000s uh, bubble bursting, basically. I had I had worked for several companies locally, and um, I had been move, trying to move because I didn't like what was going on at uh, Wilvitton Studios at the time. They had just hired a bunch of new people who ended up getting fired like a year after I was there because they were doing things like cocaine and the, uh, right. just, just crazy stuff, right? And... Um, and so I was looking for a new company and I had gotten hired on at this uh, company that was, had like multiple floors in the um, PGE building or I don't know what it's called down there in uh, Chinatown. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah. That big gigantic building. Right. right. And they had multiple floors of that. They were doing web development and I went in and they were like wowed by my portfolio and all the stuff I had done and, and they're like, oh, we're definitely hiring you and um, we'll, we'll get you an offer letter in a week or whatever week goes by, no offer letter, like, oh, what's going on? And then like another week after that, uh, we've got a hiring freeze. We'll probably pick you up at the end of the year. And then they went out of business. Right. <laughs> and, and so I was doing a lot of stuff on my own then because I decided to quit at that one job. And I had some, you know, it was fine. I was making good money. I'd work part time and still make, you know, uh, $60,000 a year or something mm -hmm. doing web development. But, um, I just got sick of sitting in front of a computer all day, you know, looking for a missing semicolon is just, it was just so tedious. And, um, I grew up around the restaurants because my mom was a single waitress. I'd worked in them as a kid. Um, and I just felt like doing something more active and interactive, uh, rather than sitting in front of a computer screen all the time, basically. And I also felt like um, restaurants, you know, I'd been thinking about doing some other business ideas and I just felt like restaurants were something people would always need, even in a down economy. Yeah. You know, I didn't like the bubble and burst cycle of tech. Right. Um, and so that was basically it. It wasn't that I thought I'd make a bunch of money or anything. It's just that I wanted to do something that I love that would be more active and interactive. Uh, yeah. And was Kenny and Zooks, that was that your kind of your first entree in, into the world? Um, food. Yeah, we started out as a, we started out as a pop up, or no, we didn't actually start up. We started out at the Hillsdale Farmers Market, and we were selling as we were called Pastrami King. Yeah, and we were, so I was active on these online uh, food groups, um, you know, Chow Hound, E Gullet, all those sorts of things. I had started my own called PortlandFood.org, and we were going through recipes. I was doing tons of cooking. And one of the really popular things at the time was pastrami and uh, doing home charcuterie, which now is just commonplace. But back then it was, you know, kind of revolutionary that you could actually do this stuff at home like they used to do 100 years ago. And so I was starting to experiment with that. Um, I also had um, a friend of sorts at the time, Michael Zeusman, who was making bagels by hand. And so I was thinking, you know, what? Portland could really use is old school deli, you know, homemade pastrami bagels, you know, real stuff, right? Not stuff, you know, bought in a vacuum sealed bag and brought in and sliced, but real stuff that tastes unique, tastes like it did a hundred years ago. And so I, um, kind of reached out on the, on, I think my own food board, Portland food, see who might be interested. And I talked to some other people. I think I had talked to, um, 
think I had talked to Rodney maybe at um, Podna's Barbecue and mm-hmm. some other people. But uh, Ken, at, uh, he had Ken's place at that time, was really interested. He was Jewish from New York. And so I gave him a recipe. He tried it out. It turned out really well. And then from there, we just sort of built and decided to do that farmer's market. And we were, I think we were doing like 100 plus pounds of pastrami a week, and we'd sell out in about an hour. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, huh, maybe we should do something else. And his lease was coming up. Um, and so we did the pop-up for a while. Then uh, we started looking for a location. He sold his restaurant, and we opened the one downtown, and that's kind of how it all happened. Where it all started. It just kind of organically went. You know, it started out as that, was popular, then did the pop-up, realized we needed seven days, uh, looked for a location. Zeusman actually found us the location, and it was, you know, a fantastic location, and this found investors, and then we were open. Up and running. I think uh, in one of our previous conversations, you might have said during your time in college, because I grew up in the same area where you went to college, and there uh, was a uh, there's a chain there's a bunch of chains of Greek owned burger places yeah in Utah pas- in Utah uh-huh. that put pastrami on on their burger was that kind of your you might I think you might have said that kind of got you thinking about pastrami at one point or it heavily influenced well, kind of where def- you went with the the taste it definitely influenced there being a pastrami burger on on uh, Kenny and Zook's menu yeah I mean without me having eaten that I mean now the big one is Crown Burger which whenever I'm in uh, Salt Lake. I always try to hit a crown burger. Right. Uh, at the time, though, so I, so I usually I first went to UC Santa Cruz and I went to BYU. Followed my girlfriend from high school basically to BYU, and um, ended up marrying her. And uh, we lived in this little apartment complex. And one of my professors, who was married to a Swiss woman, was a huge foodie at the time. And there wasn't really even foodies back then. You didn't really talk about. It, it was 90s, still kind of. Uh, a weird era for food and but he was very into cooking and very into good food and one of his favorite places was this little burger stand called Royal Burger yeah um he usually called it Pakistani burger because he couldn't remember the name but it was Royal Burger is right next to my um right next to my apartment which was very dangerous and we'd go there and it was owned by a Pakistani family it was kind of based on the same menu as Crown Burger and everything was perfect every time I mean just perfect the fries were perfect the um, my wife would always get a grilled cheese sandwich and it was perfect. Yeah. Um, and they had the Royal Burger Special, which was quarter pound flame grilled beef with quarter pound of pastrami uh, cheese. You know, with the class what they call in Utah fry sauce. Fry sauce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with a grilled bun, it was always perfect. I'd often get a Reuben from them, and their Reuben was uh, as always just grilled perfectly. You know, I mean, just everything was perfect from them. So um, that was really the inspiration. It wasn't until later I actually went to Crown Burger. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, <coughs> this is the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, th- and there's a lot of imitations. Now, I've always been- Well, and they have them in Southern California, too. Right. Those are the two places, basically Southern California and Utah. And and is the uh, is the pastrami, bar- I'm assuming that's still on the menu at Kenny and Zook's? Yeah, I assume so. I yeah. mean, you know, now that I don't uh, work there and I've got my own thing- I almost never go in, and I can I make my own pastrami all right. the time, all so, right. so I don't have a lot of reason to. That's one of the, the things I enjoy uh, following you on, whether it be Instagram or Twitter or on Facebook, is kind of your, your own food adventures of things you're experimenting with in your home kitchen, your kitchen at, at Mi Marimole, or just kind of where your travels through Mexico, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, but uh, you're always experimenting, it seems like. Yeah, I think I have a little bit of a, um obsessive quality where... Um, I'll get on a kick, so I'll be interested in something like, you know, who has good Mexican soups in Portland or who has, you know, the best uh, Vietnamese soups or whatever. And so for a month or two months straight, that's all I'll practically eat. Yeah. And so it could get a little tedious following me on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram because you'll see like, you know, the same dish like 20 times in a row from different places. But it's just because I really want to know like who's the best or what's the best. And I would assume maybe by doing it in that way where you're doing it all close together, it's easier for you to kind of recognize the differences as opposed to spreading it out and doing it kind of hodgepodge together, right? True. And I take notes um, even if I'm not working. You know, every once in a while I've written things mostly for Willamette Week. Um, You know, I've done some, like I did, I ate 75 burgers in about two or three months span one time to do a like best of burger thing. That was tough. And then uh, I did one 
uh, last year that was really fun where I went to all the uh, Mexican places that had barbacoa or um, birria and uh, ate all of those, like literally everyone that's in town. Um, and that was really fun, though, getting to see all the stuff out there. Um, How do you find all those? Because there's all these little hole-in-the-wall places, too. Do you, are you just asking asking everybody you know? Or, you know, I'm assuming will, even that some of those places, they know other places. Yeah, I will... I will say spend a half a day in Gresham, for example, just driving to places and see if they have it. I mean, some places I know don't, you know, I'll research menus, I'll ask people, but I'll literally drive to places and check their menu. Yeah. yeah. And 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 in and this isn't always associated with something you're writing for Willamette Week. This just might be just your own curiosity. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's often my own curiosity. Sometimes I'll try to like I have a friend, um uh he's a uh uh, Hindu Indian and uh, and he and I eat out all the time and he's he's always been vegetarian but uh, he recently decided to go vegan and um, which makes it a little tougher for us to go out and sometimes I try to talk him into eating at least cheese so we can go get pizza or something right but um, he's really a <laughs> I always like to say he's the most white trash Indian in Portland because his taste buds are always like super um, you know I want French fries and, you know, oh, there's a Doritos coated taco. Yes, I I want that. that. Yeah. Right. And and he'll happily admit it. And um, and so he right now is obsessed with uh, vegan burgers. And so I was thinking, oh, it'd be kind of fun to uh, eat all the vegan burgers in town and see if there's one that's like really, really good. Right. Um, Most of the ones I've had are just sort of, yeah, it's decent if Mm -hmm. you don't have a choice for beef. But, um, you know, with like impossible burger out there and, and, and a real competition for making stuff that's, uh, um, competitive with real meat. I think, uh, there's probably some pretty good options out there right now and they're, they're popping up like crazy. Do you so. have, do you have anything at your top, top of the list right now in terms no, of, no, I haven't gone to any yet, okay. but we're talking that's, about just spending like two weeks hitting them all going to like yeah. three a day or something. Carl's jr. Even has one. Carl's jr. Even has one. So. Yeah. It's, it's the thing. It is. So how do you go from, uh, Kenny and Zook's to me, Marimole. So you're you're talking about tradi- kind of uh, a traditional Jewish type delicatessen well, setup. The, the more difficult thing was actually doing Kinney and Zooks because while I have Jewish heritage, I didn't grow up um, eating Jewish food very often. So I that mean, the, the culture really wasn't there, right? Because I was in you know I was in BFE Lane County, and there was no Jewish deli. Yeah, and. Um, uh, my mom's not Jewish, and so we weren't eating uh, traditional Jewish foods growing up. But I mean, even if we were, there wasn't a deli. You know, most people don't make pastrami at home or anything. Um, and bagels were more hippie food in Lane County than the. You know, you don't think about it as deli food. You just like you go to the go to the natural food store and you right. get a bagel. So I mean, I ate plenty of bagels growing up, mostly bad ones. But um, it wasn't really uh, wasn't really part of my culinary experience growing up um you know if i went to la or or somewhere else we might go to a deli but that was about it um so for me that was reconnecting with uh my heritage but it wasn't really something i knew growing up on the other hand growing up on the west coast my mom uh lived in arizona and california my dad was from california um mexican food was constant it was a constant i i mean i think mexican food like Mexican American food and Italian American food were my childhood foods more than anything else. Um, I ate Mexican food probably three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. So, and when I was growing up, we'd either, when I was with my dad, we would either go out to eat for pizza or we'd go out to eat for Mexican food once a week. And the Mexican food was always little mom and pop shops, you know, mm-hmm. where they're making tortillas from scratch and you know most of the foods from scratch and that sort of thing and my mom would often cook mexican food uh one of my earliest memories of of my mom cooking was making chili reinos you know she has a story about when i was probably three or something she was making chili reinos and she didn't have a spatula and she would need to flip them so she tried to toss them to flip them like you would a pancake or something right and stuck them to the ceiling (laughs) so and then uh my earliest actual cooking memory for myself I was probably five, um, right outside of Junction City, this tiny little house that my dad lived in, 
and he was teaching me how to make crispy fried tortillas for like hard shell tacos. You know, uh, how to fold them properly and get them crisp on both sides so that you could open them enough to put the stuff in them. But right. They, you know, but they'd still be crisp. And I was probably five years old and I still have that memory of working on those. So, I mean, Mexican food has always been an interest to me. I'd say that um, it was probably as much a part of my growing up as most, um, you know, second or third generation Hispanics. When did you travel to Mexico and maybe Mexico City for the first time? So I can't remember when the first time I traveled to Mexico was for sure, but uh, interior Mexico City was either late 90s or early 2000s. Uh, I think it was late 90s with a friend. Um, he and I had gone to like some border towns. He was from Texas and we wanted to do a trip together. Um, and I don't know how it came up. I'm sure he recommended it, but we decided on Mexico City. So we flew down kind of blind, you know, that was before you had all these blogs where you can get like the top 100 places to eat or anything like that. We were still using Lonely Planet, which is not the best like guide uh, for finding food or places to stay really, especially if you're a, you know, a poor uh, college student or we weren't college students at the time, but we're still relatively poor. And so we stayed in like a, you know, $15 a night place where they, none of the lights were on at night, Mm -hmm. you know, because they were saving money. Right. (laughs) And, uh. And we were in the wrong part of town for that time. And, uh, but you know, it was eye opening. I can remember we went to a place that was recommended Lonely Planet, um, really old school place, um, uh, Cafe, Cafe de Tacuba. And, um, I had my first, ch- um, Chilean Nogada. So, Chilean Nogada is a type of chili reno that's, uh, generally served during, uh, Mexico's Independence Day, uh, uh, September 16th. And, uh, because it had part of it's because that's the season for um, the walnuts. So nogada is a walnut sauce, and so they use uh, basically unripe walnuts, so that they're still white. When you open the shell, they're still white inside, okay. and they have a milder flavor and uh, a lighter texture. And so they'll uh, make these chili reinos that have um, chopped beef or pork, and then it's very um, uh, probably Middle Eastern influenced in the sense that it has like, and I guess Spain too, from its Moorish influences, but, uh, you know, dried fruits, nuts, uh, uh, sweet spices all mixed together inside this, uh, poblano chili. So the bigger green chili, and then, um, covered in the walnut sauce and pomegranates and then a little cilantro on top. So it has the three colors of the Mexican flag. Um, and it's just sort of one of those classic dishes that's from, um, uh, you know, the, uh, late colonial times, uh, supposedly invented in a monastery um, for you know visiting dignitaries, um, and just kind of this has all the influences of mestizo Mexico. You know, it has uh, the pre-Hispanic uh, flavors and styles. It has you know these influences from Spain, um, possibly France. You know, the Moors, and so all of those things into one dish, and it's become one of these national dishes that you can find mostly throughout central Mexico during. Uh, the independence, but it's so different from anything that you can get in a Mexican restaurant in the United States. Most of the time, I mean, you have to really seek that sort of thing out right. in the U S to find mostly in place like Chicago or LA, you're going to find it. You can find it here in Portland, a couple of places, but it was just, you know, mind opening as to how complex and sophisticated Mexican cuisine really is. Yeah. You know, we get such a limited view. We think rice, States. beans, cheese, and a, and a tortilla, Right, right. Some spices. Or, you know, and, and our stuff is very often um, kind of modified. You know, a lot of the things that we think of as Mexican food were things that uh, Mexicans uh, either dumbed down for American taste, you know, and used, uh, you know, less spice, more cheese, more ground beef, you know, those sorts of things. Um, or were things that actually Americans would go and they'd see, oh, uh, those Mexicans are doing pretty well with this Mexican food. Yeah. Why don't we do our version? I mean, that's how the combo plate, you know, the classic rice, beans, and, yeah. you know, whatever, was invented by someone from Chicago, I believe, who went down to Texas, said, hey, these guys are doing good with this Mexican food. Let's rip it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, so as you're, when you went down and you experienced this for the, for the first time, were you absorbing all of this? Because 
um, just hearing you describe the process of that, and again, I go back to being able to to follow you on your adventures through through Mexico when you go down there. You're you're absorbing all of this. You're learning from the people as they they doing it, and I, I, I'm educated as I follow your adventures because you're sharing a lot of that same information. The process of how they're cooking the meat with local leaves and all that stuff it's it's fascinating. But were you that first time? Were you taking all that in, or did it take multiple trips down to start figuring out how they were doing it? Um, I think on that first trip, it was a pretty quick trip. I don't know how long we were down there, but only maybe like four or five days. I think I was just like, you know, overwhelmed by the whole thing. I mean, Mexico City is just, you know, an overwhelming city to begin with. Yeah. You know, it's just so busy. And in those days, they were still doing the uh, the VW bugs everywhere. You know, it's just like, you know, thousands upon thousands of VW bugs running everywhere. Just tons of people wall to wall, you know, shoulder to shoulder taking the metro where you're literally pressed like in some sort of post-apocalyptic thing, sardines in a can, Um, just that whole thing. And then, you know, uh, Mexico City has got to be one of the best uh, street food cities in the world. I mean, you know, Bangkok's fabulous, but Mexico City rivals it. And, um, you know, there's just so many things I'd never tried before, never seen before. Then you have all the architecture, you have all the history, you know, you have pyramids. I mean, it was just really overwhelming on that first trip. Um, but I had already started uh, doing a lot of um, cooking and research from, um, you know, Diana Kennedy, Rick Bayless, um, and some others. And when I came back, um, it just intensified, say, you know, like, oh, I don't want to just make enchiladas like I grew up with. I want to know what else is out there. Yeah. I mean, what else nobody else is, you know, making I want to know what there is that people only in Mexico are actually eating, and I want to know more about this history. So that's that's when it really started. So, so that if that if that was uh, late '90s, early 2000s, it was still another decade until Me Marimole first came about in 2011 out on Division. 2011, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I always loved Mexican food, but um, I wasn't. I had you know I had a ton of ideas for what I might open. Um, one of my favorite things from Mexico um, is churros. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I was really obsessed with uh, starting a churro shop. Um, there's a place in Mexico City called El Moro that I go to literally every trip. Yeah. Every trip I go there. Um, and uh, and so my idea was to open a shop doing churros and chocolate, um, as in hot chocolate, um, and making the uh, chocolate from scratch was was what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be able to have, you know, if you go to Oaxaca, you go to these chocolate shops where they're often chocolate and mole shops. And you can say, okay, I want 70% cacao, 20% sugar, 5% um, almonds, and 5% cinnamon. So the consumer and, is actually kind yeah, of dictating their- Yeah, their, I mean, they have, their, wow. they, have their, they have their set grinds, but then they will grind it to order for you. Yeah. And those, those grinds are all- relatively rough compared to say a chocolate bar that we'd eat but they're made for making uh, mole and they're made for making drinks with uh with chocolate and right. in mexico there's far beyond hot chocolate um you have all these uh drinks that go way back pre-columbian where they're mixing um cacao with various nuts and flowers and a lot of them are actually cold and they whisk uh, whisk them up so that they get really frothy mm-hmm. and they're really light and refreshing, just lightly sweet, uh, sweetened with various different things. Hmm. Um, they're really wonderful. And and most uh, regions of Mexico have their own little versions. Um, there's some areas where I think some of them are even uh, fermented to give them a little alcohol. Um, so, I mean, uh, there's tons of stuff down there t- uh, that Americans just really have never um, experienced or know about. Uh, for the most part, but, uh, but I just wanted to be able to do these, uh, you know, grinding your own chocolate then, you know, maybe an espresso place, but it was about churros. Um, so that was really one of my earliest ones. I also, uh, really wanted to do a, uh, like a high end burger place, but fast food version. Right. I mean, now, you know, we have tons of those and I'd probably be a millionaire if I had uh, <laughs> done thought, that thought about instead it then. of the deli. But, right. But, um, but that was like an early idea. So, you know, I always loved Mexican food, but I just, um, it wasn't really one of my first ideas. The Portland 50 podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. 
And and I think, you know, and, and you talk about this, when you have people walking off the street seeing me, Marimole, they're like, oh, a Mexican, Mexican joint. They need to know going in, no, this isn't the traditional Mexican joint that you're going to get. Right. I mean, in Mexico City, it is. It is. Yeah. In the sense that, so what we do is what's called tacos de guisado. Guisado is basically a stew or stir fry. It's a, it's a home style dish, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, most people, when they come in, they won't even look at the menu. I'll go, have you looked at the menu? Yeah, I've looked at the menu. Can I get a carne asada burrito? We don't have that on the br- menu. Right. You know, so that is a multiple day occurrence. And so we don't do the carne asada, the carnitas, the stuff that you see in um, the taco trucks for the most part. Uh, what we do are these home style stews. So that, so what I wanted to do, and this is popular in, in Mexico City and other parts of Mexico, but especially Mexico City, is I wanted to be able to provide a reasonably priced version of what you can normally only get at high-end restaurants in Portland. So if you go to one of the, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a really good restaurant like Autentica or Chico or uh, Taqueria Nueve or Nuestra Cocina, they all have, you know, guisados, of course, on their menu, you know, moles and uh, adobos and other stews mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, you're going to have to spend $20, $30 a person for that right. meal. And it'll be a great meal. But um, I wanted people to be able to do what I did in Mexico City, which is they have all these street stands, mostly street stands or fondas, which are uh, little shops, you know. Mm-hmm. And you'll have a dozen choices out there. You'll have dozen, maybe two dozen choices. And they're usually in, you know, earthenware bowls and they're sitting there and you'll have, you know, a mole or you'll have uh, pork skin in a green sauce or, um, you know, you might have something as simple as like uh, milanesa, which is, you know, a pork cutlet that's been, you know, pan fried. You know, just all these different things that you'll have, you know, various sauces, uh, tinga de pollo, which is uh, chicken and a tomato chipotle sauce, you know, all these classics. And you just choose. You'll say, I want a taco of that. And they'll make you a taco, you eat that. Oh, now I'll have a taco of that. Yeah. And and these are all things that normally you would have for dinner or or what they call comida, which is the big three o'clock meal of the day. And they're very home style, classic home cooking for Mexico. Uh, but in the United States, you can only get those expenses. So I want people to have that experience of being able to say, get a $10 meal and still eat these relatively sophisticated dishes, you know, not just fried or grilled meats. And so that was kind of the idea. So we have like a dozen or more um, stews each day mm-hmm. that you can choose from, and then you can get them in tacos, burritos, plates, quesadillas, bowls, et cetera. Um, the classic is just, you know, tacos of them, but, you know, we'll, if you want enchilada or a quesadilla of them, we'll do that too. Um, so a lot of people come in and they're kind of like, oh, this is weird or whatever. But most people who stay in and eat it, you know, really enjoy it. Yeah. So, so the recommenda- recommendation would be if you, if you walk in and you're not sure to just ask, what do you recommend? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. I mean, well, there's plenty of descriptions on the menu. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm actually working on a redo of the menu to make it a little bit more tourist friendly because we're in Chinatown. We got to be a little bit more, uh, friendly to tourists and, uh, and business lunchers. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess it can be a little scary because it's unusual, but I mean, uh, it's no, I would say it, the foods are more familiar than say if you go into the average Indian joint or Thai joint right. for people and people have gotten used to, you know, asking for, you know, green curry or yeah. asking for chicken tikka masala or whatever. And, um, you know, we're closer to that type of food, but Mexican flavors than anything else. Right. So. Do you think, um, so we, we talked, you know, the, you, you had the, the location on division, mm-hmm. then you expanded to two restaurants, the one in, in Old Town. When did, when did Old Town come, come about? Like five years ago? Five years ago. And then it's, when, it was about a year ago, year and a half that the division closed down? Something like that. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was basically when my lease when your was lease was up. your lease yeah, was up. Well, I actually, so my lease was up. I renewed my lease and then uh, based on that renewal, renewal sold the lease to a somebody else passed along correct um and uh that's another something i've been able to kind of follow along is the struggle with the city's redevelopment of some of these streets in terms of changing parking changing where bike lanes are and if i'm if i'm reading that right that's part of the struggle with you is that the division location was kind of hit by that right yeah our first two years or three years we made really steady growth and then um 
We had, I think the third year was when they started redeveloping Division. You know, they'd already done uh, North Williams, and then they were doing Division, uh, narrowing it to one lane through the whole thing and uh, putting in a lot of stuff for pedestrians. And um, we did fine during the construction, and then right after they changed it over, we probably dropped 20% year over year. Yeah. And then the next year we dropped another 10% year over year. And uh, the feedback we were getting from most people, like a lot of regular customers, was, I just don't want to drive down Division anymore. Yeah. You know, a lot of people would come after work um, from other parts of town, and they drive over, and they come, and, and we just weren't getting that anymore. So you could only get the neighborhood crowd, basically. And so I think at this point in Portland, uh, I mean, I don't think it's just Division or just Williams. I just think that um, the traffic that was created on those by narrowing the lanes has made it uh, even more so in those areas. Right. But basically in Portland, my feeling is if you're in what, you know, there was a time maybe, you know, five plus years ago where you could open up kind of a cool, unique spot in a neighborhood. Um, and you could still get people from outside the neighborhood. Right. Yeah. If you're in, if you're in Southeast, you could get people all the way from Northeast cause yeah. they could drive over in 15 minutes. I don't think that can happen much anymore. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of the, um, cool, unique restaurants that were in the neighborhoods are either closing or moving and um, and it's going to be, you know, burgers, pizza, you know, fried chicken um, or a place that's small enough and and just kind of grabs, you know, it's the Chinese place for the neighborhood. It's the Thai place for the neighborhood. It's the Vietnamese place for the neighborhood. So I think um, I think mostly the neighborhoods have to serve themselves right now. And even that can be tough because you might have a lot of uh, a development in like it's going to be interesting because I live in Mount Scott Arleta. You know, and so I'm in between basically Woodstock and and Division neighborhoods and closest to Foster. So now they're developing Foster. And um, so I'll be interested to see, you know, as a lot more retail comes online and Foster, how that affects um, Woodstock and Division. Because I feel like we're already have too much retail in Portland, Mm -hmm. too many spaces, too many places uh, opening businesses, competing with each other that we're just kind of seeing this like constant like open and close cycle Yeah, um, that I'll be interested to see how it affects those other neighborhoods. Cause um, they're all, they're all competing for like the same overflow dollars and there's just not enough people who can go out to eat and do that. Would you chalk that up to a miscalculation by Portland city planning or just kind of the unknown that, you know, the un- unintended consequences of trying to solve one problem and creating another? Um, maybe both. Yeah. I mean, my feeling is that there's a little bit of a SimCity mentality in Portland that you just, it's like a video game and you can just create these little, little neighbor- pockets, yeah. Yeah, these little pockets, of neighborhoods yeah, yeah. and, and the little people just magically go there. Yeah. Um, rather than just, uh, giving the whole city kind of a, a general pro development, um, uh, framework to work with and just kind of seeing what organically grows. Right. Um, and so, you know, anytime you push that sort of thing into one neighborhood, it's probably going to pull a little bit from the other neighborhood. Um, you know, you'd like to see, like, I don't even, it'd be interesting to look at. I don't know for sure, but um, all these mixed development um, places, you feel like there's too many of them and that we just need more housing be- so that you can have people to support all that retail. Right. Because I'm seeing a lot of empty retail that's just staying empty around town. Yeah. Um, and then I'm seeing a lot of restaurants that are, you know, half full most of the time. I mean, one of the reasons why we love being in Chinatown now is we can count on that lunch business. Right. And um, in division, you know, it was just so up and down um, and anything could change business. If it was rainy, we might be, you know, one tenth as busy as the day before that it was sunny during the summer or whatever, you know, or if it's cold all of a sudden, suddenly nobody comes in. And those are just dead days. Um, it's not like you make them up the next day. Everybody's like, oh, now I'm going to go out. Um, at least, you know, in downtown, we have that constant lunch business that we can count on. So if dinner's, you know, up and down, no big deal. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as you spread out more and more of the retail, um, there's just... Uh, more people trying to eat from the same pie, and they ha- I don't think the pie is growing fast enough. So I'd like to see a lot more uh, housing development and getting more density of of people before the retail builds out, and then have the retail kind of come in to fill in Yeah, the it, seems, it seems like they're doing that in reverse right now. Right, right. There's so much retail, 
and stuff, but they don't necessarily have the people to support it. To, to make, I don't know if I'd call this an awkward segue or a different ch- change directions here. Um, I can't remember who it was on Facebook. We have some mutual friends. Somebody described you once as somebody who plays the devil's advocate all too well. Have you ever heard that said about you? Um, I've, I've definitely heard people say that I played devil's advocate, which I think is partially true. Okay. So, um, you know, I think people think of the person who's the devil's advocate is just always wanting to be contrary, right? Right. And that's not the case with me. Um, I will only argue something if I at least mostly believe it's true. Okay, that that was going to be my question because uh, getting to semi know you over the years, I, I don't think I, I think you put a lot of thought into everything that you put out there, and, and maybe you don't. Maybe you're just you know I try like that to... other guy just tweeting like crazy. But <laughs> it seems like you there's a lot of thought that goes in to what you say, and for me personally, there's been times where. You've you've made me think about something completely different the way I never would, and changed my mind on some things. Well, that's I mean that's the goal. Um, I, I uh, aim towards the weak-minded, right? <laughs> the, and and uh, you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I try to research my stuff really well. Um, I try not to, you know. I think a lot of people. I mean, you see this on social media all the time. I think most people post to reinforce what they already believe, right? right. Um, for me, anytime I am feeling like, um, that's really too good to be true. Or if it's, if it's too good, I start to think it's like too good to be true. Right. And so something that really feels like, oh yeah, that's got it. That's going to be telling them. Yeah. Then I go and spend like two hours researching. I'll go through the science and stuff like that. I go, most people don't do that. No, that's. I am more likely to um, go, hmm, that makes some sense to something that disagrees with my um, previously held opinion, my prejudice or whatever you want to call it, than I am something that agrees with it um, because I don't like that comfortable feeling of like, oh, this is just right on. It's like, uh, no, there's got to be another side to this. Yeah. And so that's when I start researching the science or something. And, And then though, you know, if you start going through researching studies and- meta studies and and data and stuff like that and um and it all backs up what you already believe then you know i'm just going to be pretty insistent i and i think that might be where the the comment comes in of the playing the devil's advocate because a lot of times i'll be watching you know it might be like on an oregonian article or a lamet week article or even eater pdx something going on in the food industry there'll be kind of this group thought train going of everybody right. in this one direction and then suddenly Nick Zukin pops in there with with this thought and then it kind of stops everything cold and then there's some conversation about that and then sometimes there's a like burn the witch so suddenly <laughs> yeah. it's like we need to we need to boycott Nick and it, yeah. it, it, well, it, which think, is crazy sometimes I think mostly people on social media are there for affirmation right right and I hate affirmation like when I was in school when I was in grade school, the teachers I respected the most were the hard asses. You know, it wasn't the, you know, most kids like the, you know, the easy, te- who's the fun teacher who's always having the like uh, parties on Fridays right. and stuff. It's like, I don't care about that guy. I want the, I want the, you know, the hard ass who's like going to, um, you know, tell me I'm wrong constantly and, and push me. Right. That was who I really respected. And it's the same thing with like. Um, you know, my wife, if I'm working on a project or something, I say, Hey, can you look at this? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's pretty good. It's like, hmm, I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whereas, you, you know, change something. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have certain friends who will go through and give me like a, a pretty strong critique. It's like, Oh yeah, that yeah. person knows what they're talking about. I right. can respect that. You know? And I, I just hate that, um, that group think that, um, you know, it's really strong in Portland because it's such a, uh, non-diverse community especially politically i mean it's just very everybody it seems like all thinks the same thing right. most of the time and so um it's really easy i think for people to get on social media and put something out there and just have people go yeah yeah you tell them you're right you know all slapping each other's backs you know back and forth right and you know if i if i see something on on facebook or twitter that i agree with or i think is interesting i'll give it a like but I usually won't say like, you know, go get them, you tell them. But if someone sees some, or if someone's putting something out there, you know, like a meme that's um, 
got some major problems or just like sharing articles from some weird uh, site that, um, you know, is, is, you know, based on, you know, uh, you know, fake science or something like that, uh, then I'll usually pop up and say something. Right. And, or if, uh, you know, someone's giving a point of view that's really one-sided um, and not, you know, slowing down and waiting for more information, then I'll pop up and usually say something. Uh, people definitely don't like that. <laughs> well, you've, you've just, you know, you've ruined their flow. I know. Proved I them know. wrong. I, I've always debated that because I, and, and it's, it's one of those things where like I've started to write comments to somebody to like either correct them or say, hey, actually read this article and then think about it. But I'll, I'll stop myself because to your point, they're just looking for affirmation. They just right. want a bunch of people to be like, yes, we, we're, we're all right. Well, and what it happens with me is I end up finding out who are the people who can take criticism, who are not, right? Yeah. And if someone can't take criticism, um, I'll usually um, unfollow them. Sure. On Facebook or Twitter. I mean, I only follow like 50 people on Twitter, but on Facebook, I'll, you know how you can be their friend, but, but also not, unfollow. My, my mother-in-law. <laughs> I do that often. That's, that's my mother-in-law. <laughs> I don't know if she's listening. Right now. Um, to, to be respectful of your time, I mean, we could talk for a while now. I wanted to highlight two quick things that um, that has impressed me over the years um, that I, I wanted to make sure that was was part of this conversation. One is that for the past, and you might've been doing this from the get-go, is that... Uh, you collect coats at Me Marimole during the winter uh, for free tacos that you in turn give to people who need coats. Because in in Old Town Chinatown, it's no secret there's a lot of homeless people that are out on the streets there. Yeah, um, uh, coats and any warm weather stuff. We you know we'll collect hats, socks, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, new socks, but you know the rest can be used. Uh, you know, scarves. Um, I also go and usually and Pablo, my uh, my GM, will go and buy a bunch of uh, hand warmers. You know, those little. Yeah. Uh, Hand warmer things, so we we'll, we always have those on hand. Um, it hasn't been as cold this year as it was last year. Usually on really cold days, um, you know, I'll go out and try to give something, or you know, take a bag or something and just go hand them out. Or um, you know, if we ever see anybody going by who needs something, we'll go out. Some people know and they'll come in, um, you know, that sort of thing. We also just deliver them to organizations, you right. know, who can then use them. But uh, yeah, a friend of mine. Uh, Jose Rolot, who is in Texas and does a uh, uh, taco trail blog and is working on a book on tacos in the United States. He, um, he took a picture maybe like two or three years ago of this place, I believe in Texas that was doing it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh man, that's a good idea. Yeah. And so we started doing it. Cause I mean, you know, we're constantly seeing people in Chinatown that need help. And right. so it made sense. It's really easy for us. Absolutely. And another thing that, that I've noticed you do is that some sometimes of the year you're you're buying bike lights and handing those out to yeah, to yeah. people you know cruising down the street without any sort of light on their yeah. On well, their I used to bike. you know it's easy to uh, rant and get mad and you know I I a lot of times use Twitter as just you know a way to, uh, to vent and and rant and I was you know venting a lot about uh, bicyclists because I used to ride my bike. Um, to work all the time. And, um, you know, I was just really careful. You know, I, I, I wouldn't ride on the main streets. I'd ride on the recommended, you know, s- streets and, uh, you know, I'd always wear a helmet. I always wear a light and just, uh, driving around, you know, most Portlanders don't, um, you know, except for the really hardcore daily, um, commuters. And even then some don't. And one of the most frustrating ones is just lights because, uh, you know, it rains a lot here and, and, it's really dark and you oh, know, when, I when don't want to hit anybody. Oh, when it's dark and rainy, uh, it's, yeah. yeah. I don't want to kill anybody. Yeah. You know, I don't want to run them down. Um, and I always feel like, man, you're lucky that someone who is a defensive driver, who's really aware out there, like me is driving and not yeah. someone else because, you know, someone who's looking at their phone or something would run you down right now. Right. And so instead of getting angry about it, I looked online at Amazon, there's these, uh, bike lights that were like 99 cents each if you bought like a hundred of them or something. Sure. So I bought a ton of those. And now what I'll do is, uh, I just carry them with me in my car. And if I see someone without a, a bike light, I'll pull over, you know, roll down my window and say, Hey, Hey, you want a bike light? You know, and and you've got, you've got some strange responses from that though. Like, <laughs> I like have, no, <laughs> yeah, I think some, I think, uh, I think some people have thought that it's like, uh, I'm trying to you're, capture and abduct them or something. You're the, and, you're the, yeah, you're the new version of the uh, guy in the creepy van right, right, offering uh, candy. Yeah, we had we had the uh, I don't know if anybody else had their the the video when I was in uh, 
in like grade school, Mr. Tittlemouse. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Tittlemouse video. Here, boy, have some candy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, and and one last thing, and, and I don't know the best way to approach this because I think you're you're pretty humble about it. Uh, in in the sense that when we had the horrific attack on the Max trains a uh-huh. couple years ago, um, I think I remember you instantly hopping on or on uh, Facebook saying, "Has anybody created a GoFundMe account for these families for these these victims?" And I think very soon when when you know when we couldn't find anything, you started that up. And did you have any idea that it was going to grow to the? Oh, it was. A few was it a few million dollars? It was it was no, a pretty it was, big. It was a half a million half dollars, a million. Okay. basically, a little more, almost. I, I think it re, I think it went up to six hundred thousand. And then they have you know people who are fake yeah, know, yeah, donators and stuff. So it goes out. somewhere in the fives. Yeah, um, yeah. I I basically had tweeted out, "Hey, has anybody done this?" And someone said, "Hey, why don't you do it?" And I went, well, I okay. Guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so I started up before I even really knew any details besides the fact it, that it, it um, was pretty quick that you got that. Going. Yeah. And I think that's the main reason why it was popular. It wasn't me. It was just, um, you know, people could immediately see the need and um, the tragedy involved. Yeah. And so they wanted to help. And so, you know, being first was was basically the reason why it got so popular. Right. Um, I thought. I think I had it originally at like 30,000 or something. And that's why I, I was hoping for that. Sure. Like, you know, if we had enough Portlanders, maybe some restaurant tours who join in, you know, maybe over a week we'd get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And I think it was close to a hundred thousand by the next day. I was like, Oh, this is going to be bigger than I thought. Yeah. Now I, I, I wanted to point those, those, those few last things out just because when it, when it comes to like, when all is said and done, like the, the, my biggest takeaway from Nick Zukin and again, we're we're Facebook friends. Maybe most we've hung out in a studio a couple other times. Right, is just your your pure humanity coming out in those moments. And I just want to make sure those were highlighted. Thank as you. We had this conversation. Thank so thanks for coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, be sure to check out Kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Talking Trash, a Green Tips podcast is a chance for me to jump into the world of sustainability by talking to people in business, government, and nonprofits. Hi, I'm Peggy Lapointe. You can find weekly episodes every Tuesday at kink.fm, Apple iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts.